But we must remember that a huge portion of the revealed Word of God is revealed to us in story. Narrative accounts of things that happened. True events, real history, but stories nevertheless. And from time to time, there is value in being struck by the humanity of the story and of how God works in that humanity. And it's not as though this is unprecedented. Seated was how Jesus taught. So I'm in good company. So this morning we're going to consider the story. It's the story from the second half of Genesis 12. It was substituted for the Old Testament reading. It wasn't a mistake in the bulletin, but rather as I prepared the sermon, as I prepared the points and an outline, even this morning as I went back over it, I was moved to set aside my notes and my outline and my three points in favor of just telling the story that God tells. So we're going to consider the events of Genesis 12, the second half, and what is revealed to us there. Before we do so, let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide our time together. Spirit of God, we are about to consider a deeply disturbing story. A series of events that are shocking to us. Events that would be shocking if they were committed by a pagan, by an unbeliever, by one that we would call evil. But Lord, these things happen because Father Abraham did them. One who is a paragon of faith in the Scriptures. One who is the father of the faithful, we're told in Romans and Galatians. And yet he did these terrible, terrible sins. More than that, He did them against his own wife. The story upsets us deeply. Help us to understand it. Help us to understand how you reveal yourself in these events. We pray for your guidance. We pray for your hand upon this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Put yourself in Sarah's shoes. Sarai is her name at this point in history. Put yourself in her place. Think about how history is unfolding from her perspective. I mentioned last week that Sarah is the most mentioned woman in the entire Bible. Bar none. Second place isn't even close. She is held up by the scriptures as a, as a prominent person of faith. But that she is so is really astounding in many ways. Consider what happens in her life. So she is the younger sister of this man, Abram, that we've been following for the last couple of weeks. They have the same father, Terah, different mothers. A not uncommon practice in ancient Mesopotamia. In fact, it was a bit of a status thing for a man to marry his half-sister. Why? Because he would have double ownership over her. 
Because not only would he have the obligations of an older brother, but now he would have the obligations and ownership of a husband. It was a status symbol because it degraded and objectified the woman. Now sometimes we talk about how a goldfish doesn't know it's wet. My guess is Sarai didn't know she was owned. It was the culture she lived in. But that doesn't mean it didn't affect her. It doesn't mean it didn't impact her. So she's living in Ur of the Chaldeans. She's living a pretty comfortable life. And it's uprooted. Why? Well, supposedly, Abram, her husband, has had a vision from some unknown god. All of a sudden, Abram is talking about Yahweh. Not one of the gods of the Chaldeans. Certainly not the goddess for whom Sarai is named. Sarai means princess. She was named after the moon goddess, who was the princess of the pantheon of Chaldea. And all of a sudden, her husband is telling her that her namesake goddess is a phony, and they've got to pick up and move. Now, that first move, going from Ur to Haran, was essentially a, a, a no-brainer because there was no choice to be made. You see, Sarai lives in a violent world. By the way, we live in a violent world. We're sheltered from that here in America. A nation steeped in a Christian tradition, affected by the morals and ethics of Christianity. We lose sight of the fact of the world we really live in. When Becky and I were in Kiev some years back, we were struck by the fact that even in middle-class neighborhoods, everybody had a wall around their property, not a fence, a wall. And this is true. My, my brother testifies to this of the parts of the world he's been to on mission trip. My father and his business travels testify. This is true of a lot of the world. They have to live behind walls because the world is a violent place. And in the aftermath of Adam's sin, we saw how in Genesis 4, Lamech, we get down to Lamech and he's bragging about his violence. The world is a violent place. We see how the run-up to the flood what was the main sin that God pointed out as he prepared to bring the flood? It was the violence of man against man. The world is a violent place, and women are particularly susceptible to violence by virtue of their smaller size. And thus Sarai has no choice. Her husband, her father, her, her uh, other brother, they're all getting up and moving from her, so she's got no choice. Her life is uprooted and she moves to Haran and settles back in, only to be uprooted again to be moved to Canaan. Now, Haran was a bit of a shock, but it was culturally similar to Ur. Canaan is radically different. And in arriving in Canaan, her husband Abram is now going further and he's beginning to worship this new god, Yahweh. Sarah's life is one of upheaval. Why? God didn't reveal himself to her. There were no promises made to her. She's getting the word of God secondhand, as do we. It's preached to her by another. It's told to her by someone else. 
Now, how does it affect us when influential, important people in our lives fail? One of the influential celebrity preachers in my life was Dr. R.C. Sproul. He explained a great number of truths in a way that opened them up to me and gave me insight into the Word of God. Now, he's gone to be with the Lord, and we realize, we know that he led a, 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 an exemplary life with regard to sanctification, not a perfect one, but a good one. But imagine for a moment, purely hypothetically, had he sinned in some grievous way, how that might have affected us. Imagine for a moment that you've been affected by Dr. Sproul, that he's had an impact in your life, as I know some of you have said he'd had. Now imagine you met him at a conference some years back, and you shared with him an idea you had for a book. And a year later, you see him publish that book. And it goes on to be one of his bestsellers. How do you react? Dr. Sproul has just stolen an idea from you. He didn't. It's all hypothetical. Okay. <laughs> but how does it affect you? He sinned against you. He hurt you directly. This guy who had been an influence in your life and had affected your Christian view has now sinned against you. What Sarai experienced was infinitely worse. For while they're in Canaan, Abram uproots them again. There's a famine in the land. Canaan is a place, uh, we're, we're, if you're in the church, you're familiar with the Jordan River, and we think of the, we hear about the Jordan River all the time. But we have to realize the Jordan River is at many places a little more than a brook. There are literally parts of the Jordan River that are no wider than this aisle of this church. It is not a, a, a huge flowing river that's going to water the landscape. Canaan was dependent upon the rainfall, and when rain did not fall, plants did not grow, and there was famine. Egypt was largely protected from famine, not always, but because of the size and depth and breadth of the Nile River, Egypt could irrigate its lands, and so it was commonplace to escape to Egypt. Now, later in Scripture, famine becomes a judgment of God against his people, but there's no evidence that he's judging the patriarch at this point. There's nothing in the text to suggest this is a, a judgment upon Abram, but I think it is perhaps a test for Abram. For what was the promise given to Abram? Get up. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will give it to you and to your offspring. In other words, I'm going to make offspring of you. Had Abram truly believed the promise of his new God, I don't think he leaves Canaan. I don't think he's justified. There's no evidence in the text that he inquired of his new God to ask permission to go, and there's nothing in the text that says his new God told him to go, and only trouble ensues from going. So now Sarai has had her life uprooted twice, and now it's being uprooted a third time, and this time it's because her husband doesn't believe the new God he claims to be following. 
And so they head for Egypt. And on the way, Abram turns to her and says, Honey, you're smoking hot, and they're going to kill me and take you. Now, some of you are having a hard time with that at this moment. You're going, wait a second here. Isn't Sarai at least 65 years old? She is. First of all, let's not discount the possibility of a 65-year-old being pretty good looking. But secondly, remind ourselves of this. What did we see back in Genesis 11? The lifespans were longer then, particularly among the patriarchs. She is, proportionately speaking, early middle age given the lifespans. Presumably, their lifespans were accompanied by a, a proportionately slower aging process. So that we shouldn't think of somebody who's 65 by our day, but more like 30 or 35, early, very early middle age. Now factor this in. Unlike most of her peers, who would have had maybe 8, 10, 12 children by this point, Sarai has none. Now, every mother I know loves having children, but I also don't know any who wouldn't love to have back their pre-child body. So Sarai is early middle age, 30, 35 years old, and is not been affected by childbirth. It's a little easier now to envision her being as beautiful as is mentioned here. So they head to Egypt and he says, listen honey, for my sake, I want you to, to, to hide the fact that you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. Technically true, we find out in Genesis chapter 20, verse uh, tw 21, verse 12, I think it is. We find out that uh, 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 Sarai is his sister. But using the truth to hide another truth is still a lie. It's still a deception. You can speak the truth and still break the ninth commandment. And that's what Abram does. So why would Sarai go along with that? Well, I'm going to guess that the plan was something along these lines. That Abram said to her, listen, honey, nothing's going to come of it anyway. Because even if some guy takes a liking to you, you know, if one does, hopefully more than one will. And that means I'll have to negotiate back and forth between them as your older brother. You know, and then there'll be this whole debate, there'll be this wooing period, and they'll have to win me over, and there'll be this ongoing negotiation, and I'll drag it out, and then another guy will be interested, and I'll have to go into negotiation, and I'll drag it out, and by the time, I'll drag it out long enough that the reins will return to Canaan, we can slip out, get back to safety before you actually have to be given away in marriage. Okay. So Sarai agrees to that, and they enter Egypt. And that's not at all what he does. Because the first guy that comes knocking is nobody other than Pharaoh himself. Now, Abram was a powerful, wealthy man. He had a lot of servants, and we think probably already a lot of children by his concubines at this point. He was powerful, but he could not stand up against Pharaoh. Now, no woman wants to imagine for a moment her husband dying, but dying in defense of your honor? That's not the worst way to go. There are a whole lot of widows who would take that. That's not what Abram does at all. He may love Sarai, but his love is the love one has for an object. 
The love he has for Sarai is the love one has for a prized possession. The newly engaged young woman, she may spend every free moment looking down at that glittering rock on her left hand, but if she's held up at gunpoint, she will turn it over readily to save her life. That's how Abram treats his wife. Oh yeah, I love you. Oh, but <laughs> if it means saving my own neck, I'll give it up in a heartbeat. And you say, but Scott, he needed to save his life. If he doesn't save his life, the promise falters. But we're back to, had he stayed in Canaan where God told him to go, the promise would have been okay. And we're back to, God had said to him already, those who hurt you, I will curse. He doesn't believe that promise either, does he? Oh, and by the way, he's been promised an heir, a legal heir. Which means Sarah's got to survive. So he doesn't believe that either, does he? So he trades, oh, and by the way, how do we read how the story turned out? When the ruse is exposed, when the lie is revealed, if there was any moment in time that Pharaoh was justified in killing Abram, it was right then. But Pharaoh doesn't do it. I'm not sure Abram's life was ever really in danger. But he sells out his wife anyway. So you're Sarai. You're taken into the house of Pharaoh. You guys, as you heard the story read, probably had the thought that I'm going to guess people have had for 4,000 years. What happened next? What happened in that house of Pharaoh? Was she taken to the harem, got her hair done, her makeup done, getting ready, and then God steps in and intervenes and rescues her? There are some who will tell the story that way, but I don't think the text supports that. I think that is our preference for the way we wish things were told. We want the Christian life to be one free of all trouble and all difficulty. And so we, we envision this God who is always going to step in at the right moment and save us from harm. Well, that's not really the story the Bible tells. The same apostle Paul who wrote, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. He died for that gospel. He was beheaded for that gospel. God does not always intervene in this life to save us. And I don't think this text supports the idea that he stepped in to save Sarah. Let me take a moment to explain. A couple of things. One, I had Matt read through chapter 13, verse 1. Let's always be reminded, as helpful as chapter and verse markings are, they're not inspired. They are not God-given. Because if we don't read 13.1, we miss this important point. They returned to the Negev. The Negev is a wasteland in the best of times. Under the rainiest of conditions, the Negev barely supports life. 
So how do they return there in the midst of a drought? The drought is over. They've been in Egypt long enough for the rains to return, for the season to change, for the rains to return, and for plant life to regrow. That takes some time. They've been in Egypt a while. I'm also going to point out this, that when this event recurs in Genesis 21, when the, uh, uh, say you're my sister scenario happens with Abimelech, Moses is careful to point out in that context that God intervened, Abimelech did not know Sarah. They did not have relations. Moses goes to lengths to point that out then. Why? To protect the paternity of Isaac. So there's no question about who Isaac's father is. But one of the things, as archaeology uncovers more and more and more ancient texts, we're getting, a, we're getting to be better and better at understanding how ancient writers worked. And one of the things we've learned about ancient Mideast writers like Moses is that they often tell us a great deal by what they don't tell us. And the very fact that Moses points out later that Sarai did not, Sarah at the time, did not sleep with Abimelech, and he doesn't, he's silent about that issue here, is a telling detail. The third reason I think Sarah was violated by Pharaoh is that little phrase Pharaoh uses, Moses uses and puts in Pharaoh's mouth. Why did you not tell me so that I took her as my wife? That Hebrew phrase throughout the rest of the scriptures means one thing. I consummated my relationship with her. I slept with her. I had sex with her. It would be an exceptional thing for it not to mean so in this text. Finally, just think about the character of Pharaoh himself. He's a man who takes what he wants for his own pleasure. Are we to imagine for a moment that he snags this new toy and doesn't play with it? That's not who this man is. He's a man of instant gratification, of self-satisfaction. He is going to sleep with his new prize. Oh, he may disregard her after that, but he's not about to disregard her before. So far from being protected by her older brother in this violent world, far from being sheltered by her husband in this violent world, Sarai is raped by Pharaoh because of her husband. Now put yourself in Sarai's place. Laying in the dark, the disgusting sweat of Pharaoh still on you. How did you get here? Because my husband dragged me from my home. Because my husband dragged me down here to Egypt. Because my husband traded me off to save his own skin. Because of his new God. Thanks, Yahweh. Thanks a lot.
it'd be really easy to see Sarah walking away from Abram's God. All of us know people who have done that. I'm not going back to the church. The church hurt me. I'm not going to be a member of your church. The church is full of hypocrites. My dad claimed to be a Christian and then did X, Y, and Z to me. I can't possibly be a Christian. Mahatma Gandhi famously said, and I won't get the quote right without my sermon notes in front of me, Mahatma Gandhi famously said that Western Christianity negates Christ's Christianity. In other words, what you Christians do and how you act and how you behave doesn't measure up to the Christ you claim to follow. Well, duh! If we could live like Jesus, we wouldn't need Jesus. If we could live lives of perfection, we wouldn't need a Savior. Gandhi's mistake is that he looks at Christians and judges Christianity and says, apparently, it's a worthless religion. And so he decides he's going to go in on his own. I'm going to pursue my own righteousness. I'm going to pursue my own goodness. I'm going to make the gods, such as I know them, happy with what I do. Sarah does the opposite. I don't know when. The scriptures don't make clear how. But at some point, and, and by the way, we know, I mean, you got to be careful pronouncing anybody to be in heaven or in hell, any dead person. But when the scriptures take a person and put them in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, we can be pretty sure where they are. Sarah is on the list of the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. Sarah is held up as a model of faith in Galatians, in Romans, in these other places. We know she ended up a believer. So the when and the where and the how, we don't know exactly. But somewhere along the way, Sarah came to this realization. My husband's a pig. But that God of his loves him anyway. That God of his is going to stand by him anyway. That God of his is going to fulfill the promises to my husband despite who my husband is. That's an astounding God. Don't think for a moment this was a one-and-done event. This was just over after it happened. They made up, they went through some counseling, everything was good. No! This was lifelong pain. Did you note in there about the reward Abram got, the list of things, the camels and the donkeys? It specifically mentioned female servants. A woman by the name of Hagar? 
who we find out later is an Egyptian. Where did they acquire an Egyptian servant? Hagar, part of Abram's prize for prostituting Sarah, becomes the method, the mechanism, by which they decide to try to have a legal heir. She would serve as a surrogate for Sarah. And the child born to her would be counted as Sarah's. All of that happens. God says, nope, that's not how I intended to do it. That is not your legal heir. And now Sarah has to live with the, the mocking, the ridicule, she, the scorn is the word she uses, that Hagar and Ishmael pour upon her as a barren woman. A lifetime of these events in Egypt haunting her. And there's more. They would have regarded her barrenness as a judgment from God upon her. The book of Job was written about this same time. Job, we don't know exactly, but scholars think Job was roughly a contemporary of Abraham. How did Job's believing friends treat the catastrophes of his life? You've done something to anger God. That's the only explanation for what's happening to you. You're at fault, Job. So now you've got Sarah's barrenness. And for a time, you might go, well, it's Sarah, it's Abram, you're not sure which one's the, the reason for their barrenness. But he's going to sleep with Hagar and produce a child. She has slept with Pharaoh and did not produce one. So whose fault is it? There are no children in this marriage. This is not a one-time event in her life. What happened in Egypt haunted her the rest of her marriage. Or at least until Isaac was born. Despite all of that, despite betrayal by the very man who preached the word of God to her, Despite the pain and the shame and the uh, physical pain and the shame and the emotional trauma of being raped at the hands of Pharaoh, despite all of that, Sarah recognizes God. She realizes what Moses narrates in the text. She was not rescued out of Pharaoh's harem by anything Abram did. He didn't grow a conscience or develop a spine and step in and deal with it. God finally steps in. God finally honors the promise so that she can have a child. It's this new God that finally comes through for her and is going to honor his promises despite the horribleness of her husband. And Sarai says, that's not a God to walk away from. Imagine for a moment you're on trial. The trial is totally baloney. The charges are trumped up. 
everything is false. But it's a capital trial. Your life is literally hanging in the balance. And one of your very closest friends knows everything about you, knows all the truth, knows all the ways that the, 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 the charges are false, and he just needs to testify, and you're off. You're free. But rather than testify, this best friend denies even knowing you. Lies himself so that the trial goes forward. What would you think of that friend and of his God? That friend has claimed to be a believer his whole life and now lies and abandons you in your moment of need. Do you hate him and do you hate his God? The friend who denied knowing you is named Peter. And the friend on trial is named Jesus. And despite Peter's betrayal, because of Peter's betrayal, Jesus stays the course and says, I will die so that he can be saved. I recognize the sin in these people, and the only way to fix it is for me to go forward. We would walk away from the God of Peter because Peter betrayed us. But the God of Peter was the father of Jesus. And Jesus said, I want to get this right. I want to get this fixed. So that one day these people will not be like that. Abram, Abraham, is basking in the glory of Jesus and the grace that he offered despite his atrocious sin against Sarah. But Sarah's there too, because she saw the faithfulness of God, despite the atrocious sin of her husband. When Christians betray us, when Christians hurt us, when our pastors let us down, when our elders stray, when our childhood Sunday school teacher does something terrible, that's not a reason to abandon their God. That's a reason to remember that here at the Shore Harvest Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. Not the people who proclaim the Bible. Not the people who teach us the Bible. Not the people who are supposed to live by the Bible. They're all fallible, and that's why we need the Bible. Sarah's story is a painful story. But out of it, she saw the grace of God. who saves terrible people like Abram. Lord, teach us the lessons of this passage. Let us see this story 
and recognize what's going on here. That you are at work even in the darkest times of our lives. You do not abandon us. You do not walk away from us. Not just when times are dark because of what is happening to us, like Sarai, but even when times are dark because of us, like Abram. Still you are faithful. Still you cling to your promises. Still you uphold your faithfulness. Still you see us through to the end. Let us proclaim that amazing truth with renewed zeal for Christ's glory. Amen.